It's been a pretty bad week for Barry Grissom, who's running for the Senate in Kansas. And what is the problem with stem cell therapies at some clinics across the country? We'll tackle both of those issues next. I'm Dave Helling of the Star's editorial board, and you are on Deep Background. Well, greetings. Welcome to Deep Background for the 21st of August, 2019. I'm Dave Helling with the STARS Editorial Board. My friend and colleague, Leah Becerra, with us, as always, for the podcast. And Steve Vockrot with the STAR, here to talk about his story, or our story, on a rough week (laughs) for a man named Barry Grissom, the former uh, U.S. attorney on the Kansas side and now a candidate for the Senate in the state. Steve, great to have you here. Thanks Let's just me. start with the beginning of what what happened uh, in the last couple of weeks that it, uh, has caused heartburn for the candidate. Sure. A judge in Kansas, a federal judge who has been overseeing what really amounts to an investigation into a uh, a matter I'll describe here in a moment, but she issued a long ruling that capped off a three-year investigation into whether uh, prosecutors with the U.S. Attorney's Office in Kansas were accessing and listening to phone calls that they had obtained, recordings of phone calls that they had obtained from the prison in Leavenworth between inmates there and their attorneys. Now, you know, I think most people understand a basic tenet of the law is that as a client, whatever I tell my attorney in almost every case should be entirely confidential. And so the implication that these recordings were even in possession of the U.S. Attorney's Office were troubling to begin with. And so the uh, uh, Judge Robinson's opinion, ruling, findings of fact on, on this matter, uh, determined that there were instances in which these phone calls had been listened to, but that it was widespread that they had been in possession of uh, prosecutors there. Let's just back up a little bit. This came to light a couple of years ago that this practice had happened, sort of accidentally it came out, and the judge said, no, wait a minute, (laughs) let's find out how involved this problem really was, and she appointed a special master, which is kind of an um, official of the court, to sort of dig into this, and then you had the hearings and the testimony and everything, and this ruling was, in essence, her finding that this was going on a lot, and a lot more than should have been going on at all, right? Um, so to be to be precise about it, there were three instances in which they had established that phone calls were listened to. Um, the possession of the phone calls was more widespread than that. We don't know to what extent other client calls were listened to, but but even the possession is a problem. Even the possession is a problem, and and the idea be, that the U.S. Attorney's <laughs> Office felt this was completely legal, which was another part of the findings. Right, um, and but also what the ruling addressed was the obfuscation and uh, really attempts by the U.S. Attorney's Office to cover up and not cooperate with the investigation, and so there is an, there is some question about you know what evidence do we not know or have in the public's possession about really how extensive this was. Um, and you know, as it relates to Barry Grissom, he was the U.S. Attorney from 2010 to 2016. 
and now he's running for Senate as a Democrat in Kansas. And you know, one of the things that Judge Robinson said is that there's evidence that shows that this practice of collecting these phone calls went back as far as 2011. So for five of the six years of his tenure, this was going on. Yeah. Now, that brings us to Barry Grissom, who's running for the Senate. He says, I had no idea this was going on, and if I'd have known about it, I'd have been... I'd have fired the attorneys that were involved. And indeed, we should point out that in Judge Robinson, Julie Robinson's uh, findings of fact and opinion, she didn't mention him ever, didn't blame him for this problem, didn't say that he had authorized it or, or didn't authorize it. But it's clear that it, and did not, is not, Barry Grissom is not allegedly involved in the cover-up, at least based on what we now know, the so-called cover-up. But he was the U.S. attorney when this was happening. Right. And, and you know, there, there's been a fair bit of literature over the years, um, both in news stories as well as in court documents, that points to a level of dysfunction within the U.S. attorney's office. It's, it's, well, it's, it's, a, it's a poorly kept secret, if you can even call it a secret at this point, among the defense bar in Kansas that the U.S. attorneys in particularly in the Kansas City, Kansas office, are use heavy-handed tactics. That was um, in the finding, too. The judge said, hey, we know that uh, they really lean on defense attorneys. There was testimony to that effect. Right, right. And, and there, there was also testimony that this from a, uh, one of the top people in the office while Grissom was there, at least for a portion of the time that he was there, a gentleman named Mike Warner, who said that he had brought these concerns about prosecutorial heavy-handedness and misconduct to Grissom's attention, and that Grissom, uh, I think the quote was roughly to had his head in the sand about yeah, the whole didn't issue. care about it. Um, now, Leah, if one of the things we always hear in cases like this is, "Hey, I had no idea what was going on," if I, you know, were using was using sources in my stories that I made up, and they found out about it. That would not absolve my editor of having some oversight over that, right? I mean, there has there has to be some sense of responsibility. Do you talk about that a little bit or not? Well, I think in any organization, uh, government or a business or even a newspaper, there are usually some safety nets in place. And that's in our newsroom. I mean, that's an editor job. It's you're the safety net. And of course, lures and things like that. So yeah, he he had oversight, and I think a lot of people, especially in our comments, they see that, and um, they don't seem to be too happy about the fact that he's now a candidate. Right. I think what we argued in our editorial was he either knew or didn't know about this behavior. If he didn't know, he was running a rough shot office. If he did know, then he was complicit in this behavior. Either way, it doesn't reflect well on the on the candidate. Well, it's clear, and you saw from our story that ran Sunday that, you know, the uh, his political opponents are sharpening their knives over this. And I think this, it's pretty clear that this is gonna be the, the, the backdrop and the nature of the criticisms of Barry Grissom as he goes forward. You know, and, 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 and to your point, did he know, did he not know, is one, that much better than the other? I mean, they're both, you know, it's, it's kind of like pick your gun a little bit. Right, um, right. I think, you know, there, there's a reasonable argument that could be made that either scenario is 
less than flattering. But it's also important because he is using his resume as the main reason for running. He's never held elective office. His whole argument is, hey, I was once a U.S. attorney. We did all these great things. At that point, then, you know, scrutiny of his of his operation in that office is is fair game, arguably. Right. I mean, in, I mean, it would be in any case, but particularly in a case where he says, "Hey, promote me because I did such a good job as U.S. attorney." Well, and it, you know, one of the advantages that a politician or an aspiring politician has who's never held elected office before is they don't have a record to run on. Uh, the exception in this case with Barry, I mean, the U.S. attorney is an appointed position, but there is somewhat of a record of his performance as U.S. attorney. And to his point, you know, he'll say that they carried out some major prosecutions, that, you know, they helped prosecute, you know, would-be uh, violent criminals, terrorists, things of that nature. And that's that's all true. But the, <clears throat> the, the problems in that office were significant and in some cases go even outside this uh this this ruling and those are going to be things that his opponents are going to use against him in the, yeah. in the campaign um and, and particularly democratic opponents who obviously he faces a primarily uh, um you know we i think brian lowry we did a podcast with him a couple of weeks ago about the state of the senate race and we've all focused on mike pompeo and chris kobach and who else might run but I think the Demo- it's an open seat, and so the Democratic Party had at least some hopes they might be competitive. But this really puts a dent in their effort to use Barry Grissom as the candidate in that race, doesn't it? Yeah, I've already seen a few people saying that, you know, he should just drop out of the race at this point already. Right. And we don't get a sense, do we, uh, Steve, that that's going to happen. But this isn't a story that sort of fades away. I mean, it's almost tailor-made for a campaign commercial later in Right. And, you know, his letter to the editor um, in response to the uh, editorial, which was uh, pretty critical of, of him, you know, he doesn't give any any indication that he's going to that he's going to drop out of the race. And he kind of continues to defend his time in office as, hey, we did these good things and I stand behind those. I cleaned up or worked on some of the issues within the office uh, in terms of, you know, seeking these like overly harsh penalties and you know, sort of procedural moves that were dis- disadvantageous to defendants. Um, but yeah, I mean, the fact that this stuff was going on, the extent to which it was going on, and the overlap in his time there is that's just going to be that's just going to be a problem that he's going to have to manage. Yeah. I don't know quite how he does that. Pro- presumably, he kind of keeps saying what he's saying, and you know, people can maybe see. Uh, uh, see through the implications of Judge Robinson's ruling. Right. I'm sure we'll talk about this going forward. Let me wrap this up, though, Steve, by, and, and Leah, chime in, too, by asking for your more general observations about U.S. attorneys who are political appointees. People probably aren't aware of that, but they're appointed by the White House, the Justice Department, and they're usually handed out to people of the party of the president, Barry Grissom, a Democrat, Barack Obama, nominated him for the post. And people probably don't realize that the U.S. attorney doesn't come in and just wipe out the staff and hire his own people, that there are career attorneys who do most of the heavy lifting in those offices. And in some ways, the U.S. attorney gets to be on TV a lot and in the paper but isn't involved in the nitty-gritty of prosecutions typically. Um, 
So is that an out for Bear Grissom to say, hey, look, I was kind of a figurehead. I've covered a lot of U.S. attorneys, and they're always the public face of the department. But when you dig into it deeply, it isn't completely clear that they have, you know, sort of innate line responsibilities. I'm, I'm really asking for just your analysis well, uh, based on the U.S. attorneys you've known and at times you've covered the office. Right. And they're political appointees in the sense that, you know, it's not it's not like the president is sitting in the Oval Office and, you know, thinking in each state who he needs to appoint or each district. I mean, typically these are people who are advanced to their office uh, through local politicians or, you know, state senators, things like that. And, you know, and yeah, while while they are political appointees, they're still supposed to operate somewhat within the confines of the uh, Justice Department, um, which is supposed to be apolitical. Um, and we've had instances even in Kansas City where there's some question about the political motivations of what U.S. attorneys are up to. And, and the, the K, you know, Exhibit A is Brad Schlossman, who was the acting U.S. attorney for the Kansas City, Missouri office and got into all kinds of hot water later right. as part of the uh, the claims that the Bush administration pushed out Todd Graves and others and his own approach to civil rights, that type of thing. Right. But, you know, if you're if 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 you take the tack that you are a figurehead or, you know, somebody tasked with the managerial duties, it makes it a little harder to say, you know, you kind of came in and saved lives. Uh, with some of these prosecutions. Right. That's the other flip side of it is I claim I did all these great things, but the bad things I had no knowledge of. That's a harder argument to make. It's either one or the other. Right. Right. Uh, Neither one is particularly easy, I suppose. Yeah. Leah, what uh, do you think this does to the race? We'll wrap up here. Does this change the Senate race in your view in Kansas or do we do we still talk about Chris Kobach and Mike Pompeo? (laughs) It seems like it's still too early to really tell, to be honest, but there will always be that connection to whoever, um, as a member of whichever party appointed a person. So kind of like you've already said, that's probably going to come up when it comes to the season where we start seeing a lot more attack ads and things like that. I would also say this just briefly. the, one of Barry Grissom's problems with this story is nobody really knows who he is. I mean, it isn't as if he had been had a long public career and, and this was a, a bump in the road. Literally, most voters had probably never heard of the guy, and so their first introduction to him is this story. I mean, the first thing they really, you know, when they start to scrutinize the Senate race, this story becomes the first thing they know about him. That's, that makes it tougher, doesn't it, Steve? Well, yeah, I mean, especially especially because it's going to be repeated over and over again. And I mean, it's already been in the front page of the paper um, and, you know, the, the, the topic of an editorial. And so, um, yeah, you, you, it's, it's hard to really see how he um, how he handles it. But, you know, I mean, there there's some candidates who've been through. Much worse. Well, no question about have it. Still managed to win their. Elections, no, no so. question about it. But. I mean, I'll just wrap up by saying the Democrat in Kansas, whoever the party nominates, faces an uphill battle in Kansas, which hasn't sent a Democrat to the Senate since the 1930s. And uh, this kind of story out of the gate is probably not helpful. We'll see. I can say that I'm on the editorial board. Steve Bockrock with The Star, thanks so much for joining us. And uh, Leah, stick around. Uh, In our next segment, we're going to talk to Andy Marceau about stem cells and stem cell clinics and what's going on and what you should think about when someone says, let's put a needle in your eye. Stay with us for that. 
Hey there, it's Leah. Hope you're enjoying the podcast. If you like what you hear, help us support this podcast and the journalism that reporters at the Kansas City Star do every day by subscribing. There's an easy way for you to do it. Head to kansascity.com background. You'll even get a special discount just for being a Deep Background listener. Subscribing at that URL will get you three months of unlimited digital access for $1.99 total. You get access to KansasCity.com, the e-edition of the newspaper, mobile apps, and more for three whole months, and it only costs you $1.99. It's a pretty sweet deal, plus you'll be supporting journalism that makes a difference in Kansas City. So grab your computer or mobile device and go to KansasCity.com background. And hey, thanks for listening. Okay, back now on Deep Background, Dave Helling with the Star's editorial board and my friend Leah Becerra joining us as well. And Andy Marceau, the uh, great health care reporter for the newspaper, is here today. Andy, thanks so much for joining us to talk about your big story on, um, for lack of a better term, stem cell quackery <laughs> or alleged quackery. Um, talk a little, and not just in the Kansas City area, it was a national story, but it did involve Kansas City area clinics. In brief, tell us what you found and reported on. Right, so I had noticed um, several months ago that there were a lot of these uh, advertisements in our newspaper and elsewhere for uh, these free seminars hosted by stem cell clinics, and they were uh, essentially you know, touting stem cells as a treatment for a whole lot of different um, medical conditions. Tell people what stem cells are for those who don't know. Right. So, so stem cells are undifferentiated cells. They're kind of like the initial building blocks uh, of, of human life biologically. And so, you know, as you grow, they will differentiate into various cells, fat cells, muscle cells, bone cells, etc. But everybody retains a certain number of undifferentiated cells, and then there are other places you can get undifferentiated cells, like from umbilical cords or amniotic tissue. Um, so there's been a lot of kind of scientific research around trying to figure out what these cells can do. Uh, but at the same time, there's also kind of this parallel track of unregulated um, commercial clinics that are just doing <laughs> doing things with the cells. Now, the promise of stem cell research is that these cells might be used to regenerate diseased organs, correct, Andy? Or Potentially, to do all kinds yeah. of things. Potentially repair damaged cells. So whether it's a you know, liver cell or Whatever. skin cell or something like that. You know, you could potentially repair damaged cells. And now clinics are stepping forward and saying, hey, (laughs) we can inject you with these cells and cure a whole range of maladies. Inject you or, you know, give it to you intravenously. And so, like I said, I was seeing these advertisements and, and I have, you know, kind of interests in stem cells, both personally and professionally. I mean, people who know me know that I had meningitis many years ago. I... I lost uh, parts of my limbs, and I, and I have neuropathy or nerve pain in in what's left of my feet, and so a lot of these clinics were advertising this as a treatment for neuropathy. 
So I, I've started looking into kind of the medical literature and, and really didn't even have to look at the medical literature. There, there was quite a bit of reporting that had already been done because these clinics had been popping up all over the country. And, um, you know, major news outlets like the New York Times and the Washington Post had, had done stories about how, um, you know, none of these treatments were really proven in, in the sense that they hadn't been, you know, clinically tested, uh, approved by the FDA. And, and in some cases, they were actually harming people. Um, there were a couple of clinics down in Florida that were injecting cells into people's eyes, which they said was going to help treat these degenerative vision conditions. But several people said that it actually, you know, greatly accelerated the pace of their blindness. Right. I got a sense from the story, Leah, that these stories pop up on street corners or, you know, in the strip mall, <laughs> come see us and get, get stem cell therapy. It, you know, you could see how, and I can say this at someone at a rather advanced age, you could see the allure of such a... Uh, a of a, a miracle a, drug. Of a miracle, right, that you could go in and, if you have problems in, with pain in your feet or whatever, or, or the macular degeneration in the back of your eyeball, um, and but it was stunning what I think Andy's story said, that th th these are popping up without really any major oversight, Right. Yeah, I mean, the, the FDA has, has kind of taken this somewhat hands-off approach where, you know, they've, they've taken a few particularly bad actors to court, like one of the clinics down in Florida that blinded, allegedly blinded people. Um, and then they keep issuing this kind of escalating series of warnings to the rest <laughs> of the industry and each one is sort of more strongly worded than the last but it seems like most of the industry is not paying attention but, and how about point. warnings to the public i mean how, how about you know you can say to the clinics don't do this but you know the what does the public know i mean ultimately these are still businesses they're still trying to make money and they're still spending money on advertising and that advertising is catching people's eyes so even if they were bad actors out there and the information is out there that they are bad actors, it's probably a lot easier to find the we're going to cure everything information than it is to find the, oh, this clinic did something well, that not, maybe didn't turn out so well. Yeah, right. And not only that, but the willingness of people who have an, uh, an illness or disease to believe in a potential cure is high. I mean, that just people want to believe that you can just get an injection and solve your problem. One of the first stories I ever covered as a reporter back in the late 70s was the controversy over Laetrile, which was a, um, a medicine derived from uh, peach pits, apricot pits, that supposedly had restorative power over cancer. And people really wanted to be believe in Laetrile. And Andy, they would say, hey, look, even if it doesn't work, I want to believe that it works. You've got a little bit of that here, don't you? That, yeah. That, that this is a, this you know, let me try it. Even if it doesn't work, at least it gives me some hope of it. Right. It's that kind of free market yeah. uh, ethos. And, and actually, one of the scientific advisors for one of these clinics locally that I, that I interviewed, who is a veterinarian, by the way, um, he essentially said as much he, he said like something to the effect of well 
you know, I sent my wife to this clinic to get, you know, her joints injections and, uh, yeah, maybe it was the saline that helped her pain or, or maybe it was the stem cells, but what does she care? What does it matter? And, you know, people that do scientific research for a living will tell you that that's not the right attitude to have when you're talking about medicine. You know, the placebo effect is very strong and it's not ethical to sell somebody something if, you know, you're not sure whether it's what you're selling them right. that's actually helping them. Do you or think the it's public understands that, Andy? Because it, you, there's all kinds of political pressure for compassionate care laws that in essence say, we don't care if it works, we're not gonna wait for the FDA, just put it out there. There's more, it seems as if there's more support for that approach than we commonly know, and anger at the FDA for delays and for denying access to certain treatments and even for people who are terminal. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of, uh, I think, mistrust in government in general right now, and the FDA is certainly not immune to that. And so there are a lot of analogous things here. I mean, medical marijuana, it's not FDA approved, really hasn't been studied in most cases, hasn't gone through, you know, the clinical trials that, that other pharmaceutical drugs go through, and yet we're legalizing it all over the country without that kind of evidence. And right to try laws that you kind of alluded to where, you know, people who are terminal are, are allowed to try medications that are still within the FDA pipeline haven't really been proven safe and effective. But I think that there's kind of, these are all shades of, of gray, but they're different shades of gray. I mean, if you have somebody who's terminally ill, who wants to try a drug that hasn't been approved, but is still, you know, going through an, an actual formal process, I think that's a little different than selling somebody who, you know, suffers from joint pain, uh, a treatment that, you know, you're not even trying to study whether it works or is a placebo or right, not. Right, right. I think one of the reasons there's so, and maybe you could just react to this, one of the reasons there's so much pressure for short-circuiting, if you will, the FDA process is precisely because there is an FDA process. And people have over the years become accustomed to thinking their drugs are safe and efficacious because we have a rather lengthy, intense process to prove that they work and that they're safe. And so people feel free to sort of walk away from that precisely because people aren't dying everywhere as they might have been 120 years ago before you had an FDA. Do you think that's right? That, that Just talk about that a little bit, that it's a, a little like the vaccination argument, which is, uh, I don't want to get my kid vaccinated. The only way that works is if everyone else does get their kid vaccinated. And I think maybe there's some of that dynamic at play here on on issues like Yeah, this. maybe. I guess what you're suggesting is that the FDA is sort of a victim of its own success. I would say that's maybe less true with them than, than, yeah. with, than with vaccines because there have been, you know, examples of drugs that have gone through the entire process, the 10 years or whatever it takes. And still not. And, and then they still end up killing people. Yeah. Um, so, but I think that that's more an argument to, to say that, you know, we need this process because even with this process, it sometimes fails, but you need to have some kind of process so that you're not just throwing anything and everything out there on the market and saying, well, let the consumer decide, sort of buyer be aware. Right. And particularly in something as important in medicine. Just to sort of conclude this conversation, the, 
there are or could be legitimate uses for stem cells, right? I mean, your your story found these cases of these clinics sort of. Did, did, did people online, by the way, Leah, write in and say, no, this worked for me or this was great or yeah, were there I a lot there of defenders was, of the industry? I think there was actually one person on Facebook who said that he was getting stem cell injected into his knees and it did the trick. So <laughs> there were definitely people that were claiming it totally worked for them and people who were saying shame on these companies. Yeah, so, I yeah. mean, yeah. But I, I just the reason I ask is you wonder if these kinds of stories taint the legitimate research and the re- legitimate use of stem cell technology. Well, I think there's a lot of concern about that in academia right now, for sure. The, I mean, you know, there's a, a stem cell research institution at KU, uh, it's mostly state funded, um, and you know the director there said, yeah, he's very concerned that that all all of these clinics that are fairly unregulated are are casting doubt on you know the the legit research that's going on, and I know that there are other people in academia that share that sentiment. Um, there's a, a guy that I interviewed who's a, a cell researcher out at uh, California Davis and um, he's been kind of tracking this this industry as it has sprung up from a few dozen clinics to you know maybe as many as a thousand in the US now and and blogging about you know the various miracle uh, cures <laughs> well yeah I mean the various claims that they make yeah, right, and right. kind of trying to vet the industry a little bit so I know that yeah, definitely within academia, the people that are doing the kind of careful FDA compliance studies, uh, they have some concerns about, you know, horror stories about people being blinded, people getting serious infections in their back or shoulders, knees um, from these treatments. Yeah. It seems like people who are seeing these advertisements for these clinics, they should be taking the messages of this miracle cure with a grain of salt, but what can people actually do to sort of fact check? Right, so there's a couple of resources out there that I found. The FDA has now put out a, a little, a very kind of brief list of best practices, and, and the first thing they say you should do is ask the clinic, like, have you, has the FDA reviewed what you're doing here? And if they say yes, then ask them, okay, what's your investigational new drug number? And if they give you a number, then take that number back to your regular trusted physician that you see all the time and say, hey, can you look this up for me and, and kind of, you know, give me an idea of how legit this this study, this treatment is. Uh, so that's one thing to do. And uh, the KU Stem Cell Center has actually put out a much more detailed, much longer kind of list of uh, questions that you should ask the clinics. And uh, that's available on their website. So yeah, I would I would urge uh, extreme skepticism. Um, get several different medical opinions from doctors that you've been going to for a while and that you trust uh, before you would try something like this. Right, and and be worried if they want to shoot it in your eyeball. I mean, that <laughs> that, that, that lead to your story was just extraordinary. Yeah, the FDA seems to be. Uh, pretty bullish on stopping the eye injections right now. Although I, I would note that there are actually legitimate research institutions 
that are trying that kind of thing, but there's a couple red flags to watch out for. If they want to inject both of your eyes at the same time, <laughs> that suggests that it might not be a legitimate research trial because if you don't know whether it's going to work, you probably start on one eye and not both. <laughs> Any more so, it's so great to have you on the, po- the podcast. We should note for listeners that Andy is leaving the star here shortly, and we'll miss you, Andy, and you did a great job in... Uh, Newspapers need good health reporters, and you were certainly one of those. So thanks for being with us. Thank you. And Leah, of of course, thanks for joining us. I'm Dave Helling with the Kansas City Stars Editorial Board, and you have been on Deep Background. 